As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, it feels like there's a lot of uncertainty <laughs> at the moment. You think? <laughs> Why? Why? What? What's uncertain? Kind of everything at the moment. So obviously you have what's going on with geopolitics and yes. Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And that's obviously a big thing for markets. But even without that, you were sort of at this inflection point where central banks were just beginning to respond to inflation risks. And there's this question of how much of an impact that's actually going to have on risk assets. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think it's kind of been a confusing couple of weeks mm. in terms of understanding both the plan from central banks and, of course, primarily we're talking about the Fed and the market response to them because we did have uh, the start of a rate hiking cycle, 25 basis points, many more hikes expected. And yet we've, uh, you know, the immediate market reaction mm. was this rally. And so there's questions right, which about- weird. Which was not necessarily expected. And the question is, well- is this the market doesn't think the Fed is going to go that hard? Does it think the Fed isn't going to need to go that hard? Or is the market going to be surprised that the Fed really is going to do what it says? And maybe we're going to get multiple 50 basis point hikes. Lots of confusion. The start of the rate hike cycle has not really uh, created any uh, certainty about what's next. No, and we actually had <clears throat> to have uh, Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, come back on and just emphasize that they were actually going to hike yeah. um, at a potentially significant rate. and. Then we saw the market reaction. But, I mean, even beyond the U.S., there's been a lot of uncertainty. And just looking at China at the moment, we've had, you know, a big sell-off in China tech stocks mm -hmm. yet again. At the same time that there was this expectation that they were going to be easing even more, and then we saw them crack down further on the tech space. And then they seemed to walk part of it back. Um, so this is another open question mark over what exactly China's central bank is doing here. They seem to be, you know, taking two steps forward and then one step back and trying to calibrate everything. And it's I, I feel like it's just confusing the market at the moment. Everything. The real estate in China, of course, a huge, huge deal. Energy. So, so much. Yeah. OK, well. On that note, on the note of uncertainty, we are going to be bringing on uh, one of our favorite guests. We're going to be speaking with Victor Schwetz about, well, everything really, what central banks are doing, the situation in Russia, what's going on in China. He's going to try to bring it all together. Uh, Victor Schwetz is, of course, the head of global and Asia Pacific strategy at Macquarie Capital. So, Victor, thank you so much for coming back on the show. 
Thank you for having me. I feel like one of the things that happens when we are in times of uncertainty is everyone starts reaching for a historic parallel, and then mm. they try to sort of fit that on what's happening now. And there's never a perfect one, but it does feel like the one that's emerged as consensus most recently is the idea of going back to the 1970s era of high inflation, some sort of commodities shock that then feeds into the broader economy. Is that the right way of framing things? As you correctly said, no historical parallel is perfect. Uh, if you think of 1970s, uh, we today live in a very different world. Uh, labor market and the structure of labor market is massively different than what it used to be. Our financial leverage, addiction to asset prices, is radically different to what it used to be. Uh, if you think of technological innovation, uh, we, we really uh, live in a world where technology is everything. When people say tech, I basically say, what do you mean by tech? Everything is tech these days. Whereas 1970s and 60s were much more about inventiveness uh, rather than uh, uh, innovation. We have a very different demographics. We we have very different income and wealth inequalities. We're closer to 1910s, 1920s Gilded Age uh, than we are to 1970s. Hmm. So there is no perfect parallels. Uh, <clears throat> the way I prefer to look at it is to say uh, there were three big shocks uh, to, to the system. Uh, one was in the early 1920s. Uh, the other one was uh, between 1945, 48, uh, and the third one uh, is uh, is it was clearly 1970s. And what we're going through is just another one of those cycles. Each one of those episodes have something to teach us. And so, to me, just looking at 1970s, uh, sort of ignoring the lessons of some of the prior periods. For example, <clears throat> clearly there was a massive spike of inflation. Uh, around 1919, 1920, 21. Uh, that was the end of the Spanish flu or, or process of Spanish flu, as well as the end of the Great War, uh, Great War, which is World War I. Uh, what you have then is a significant tightening of monetary and fiscal policy occurring. And when that occurred, uh, in 1921, 22, there was a massive deflationary bust. CPI was negative more than 20% before it finally stabilized in 1923. Mm. If you think of 1940s, again, that was the back end of World War II. Uh, we had a significant inflationary spike early on. Uh, but monetary policy remained incredibly loose. They, they didn't really tighten at all. Uh, and what was happening through the back end of 1940s, inflation just worked its way out of the system. And the only time it picked up again was in 1951 in the lead up to the Korean War. Uh, but then it stabilized uh, for almost two decades after that point. So the question is, when you look at all of those periods, what they're telling us is that you know, premature tightening is not necessarily a good thing. Waiting too long is not necessarily a good thing. Uh, just using fiscal policy might or might not be the right thing. But every one of those episodes is different. And I think what you need to look at today and say and ask, why are central banks tightening? Uh, well, because there is inflation. Okay, why do we have inflation? Why we did not have inflation in December 2019 before COVID, why we were not running out of people in December 2019, and why we're running out of people today? Well, the answer is it's not demand. 
demand globally is only slightly higher mm. than it was uh, prior to the onset of COVID. I, I mean, there are some exceptions. U.S. is further advanced, other countries are less. But globally, it's not that much higher. So it's not so much demand. What clearly happened is that demand shifted massively to goods against services. Right. Uh, what we had is a massive disruption <clears throat> of supply chains. Uh, what we had is massive shocks to the system. But theoretically, all of that prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine started to normalize. If you think of most supply uh, indicators and value chain indicators, uh, they, they really the stress, maximum stress was about September, October 2021. Uh, after that, it was all easing back. Um, and so if you think of why tighten today, why do we have a problem today? Well, because we disrupted. We disrupted labor market. We disrupted supply chains. We disrupted products. Uh, we disrupted everything. Uh, and so the result is there is massive shortages suddenly emerging. Now, do you just leave it to work its, its way through the system? Because what we're seeing today already is that fiscal pulse is massively negative globally. We're taking out, amongst G5 economies, about $3 trillion. Monetary pulse is becoming negative, too. We're taking out more, and we will take it even more as we go forward. Uh, the result is that leading indicators are already weakening. Reflation and cyclicality are weakening. The system is already adjusting. And as it continues to adjust, why, why do you want to necessarily court 1921-22 type deflationary bust by tightening in the face of already declining pressures. Now, you could argue, of course, you could argue, of course, that, look, Russia, Ukraine upended all of this and we suddenly have another shock. Absolutely. But monetary policy is not the best tool to use when you have a supply chain problems or uh, or a geopolitical problem. So it's interesting. So, I mean, God, I have like a million questions after that. And that was like a sort of fantastic overview. But I just want to home in on something very specific. I'm surprised that for all of the talk about inflation in the wake or really uh, with an ongoing pandemic, that I hadn't heard more about the inflation in the wake of the Spanish flu. Because you think, well, if we're looking for historical analogies, a pandemic and subsequent inflation would be a pretty good place to start. And yet you don't really hear many people go there. Can you just talk to us a little bit more about that inflationary boom, then bust? What was the catalyst for that inflation? And how long did it last? And then, of course, you mentioned the tightening and the turn into a bust. But give a little bit more color on what happened then. Yeah, sure. Essentially, the, the thing to remember, in, in 1913, 1914, uh, the world was incredibly globalized. Right. Um, and uh, in fact, globalization of 1913-14 was not again replicated until 1990s. Uh, and so there was a lot of books written uh, back in 1905, 1909, 1910, basically saying there is a lot of geopolitical pressures, but the war is inconceivable because we're so interconnected on a global basis. Plus, our weaponries are so dangerous and so deadly that you just can't have a war. Uh, and of course, you did. And so one of the things that happened in the wake of global war or World War One uh, is that all the supply and value chains were disrupted. All, all the things we're seeing today through the war, there was a lot of disruption of, of physical capacity occurring. Uh, and so and so there were shortages uh, in ability to supply goods uh, uh, was very pronounced uh, towards the back end of, of World War One. 
Uh, the other thing you had, you had a disruption of the labor market. Not, not as extensive. Uh, I mean, Spanish flu was much more deadly, uh, primarily because our medicine and science just progressed so much uh, over the last, uh, you know, 70, 80 years. It was much more deadly, but in some ways it was a little bit less disruptive to the labor force because people just moved on with it. Uh, uh, and But nevertheless, there was a disruption of Spanish flu occurring uh, at the same time. Uh, and so there was a very significant spike in inflation rates because of a global disru disruption, because of destruction of capacity on a global basis, because of the Spanish flu. Uh, and so what happened is that the uh, Federal Reserve of New York uh, you know, massively raised the discount rates. Mm. Um, and as they raised discount rates and the fiscal policy will brought back into under control, in other words, deficits were reduced, uh, you ended up with a significant bust. Uh, now, this episode was described by, by Milton Friedman uh, and many others. And the view was that if perhaps Federal Reserve of New York acted earlier uh, rather than waiting for inflation to persist, maybe they wouldn't have had to tighten as much. So there was there is a debate clearly going on right. what you should have done. But the net outcome was more than 20% deflation uh, in 1921-22. Uh, by 1923, it, it stabilized. And in fact, uh, the climate was slightly inflationary and or slightly deflationary uh, all the way to the, the crash uh, of 1929, 1930. Um, and, so, and so that's an example. This is the example of the government uh, or the public uh, instrumentalities uh, either waiting too long to act and or acting too much and causing significant economic uh, and asset price disruption. Hmm. Now, in 1940s, on the other hand, <clears throat> remember, the interest rates were fixed back then. And so there was no change in interest rates, no change in the discount rate. Uh, uh, fiscal deficits have come down, but only gradually. The government was prepared to spend money uh, to uh, either construction or restructuring of the industries from wartime to peacetime. Uh, and so the result was uh, a very strong inflationary spike uh, in 1946-48 uh, was basically out of the system by the time you get to around 1949 uh, and only spiked again <coughs> at the onset of Korean War. Uh, but then after 1951, it basically stabilized. So that's a result uh, basically telling you that uh, we've made a decision uh, back then that we're going to have inflationary spike and we're going to work its way out of the system uh, rather than fight it. Whereas in 1920s, decision was made that fiscal policy needs to be brought under control uh, and monetary policy was significantly mm -hmm. tightened. Now, if you think of today's experience, uh, what we actually have decided in 2020 is that we are more, we would like to have inflationary spike rather than deflationary bust. Remember when the onset of COVID started, uh, banks were making huge provisions. And the reason they were making huge provisions, they were expecting a deflationary bust. Right. But it did not happen. <clears throat> and the reason, of course, we know it didn't happen is because fiscal authorities and monetary resources all stepped up and propped up demand. That's a cause for all the problems we're experiencing today. So in other words, we propped up the demand, demand shifted to goods against services, suddenly we have shortages, suddenly we have inflationary spikes. And so the question now is, um, it's all working its way out of the systems. Logistics is getting better, certainly prior to Russia, it was getting better. Supply times were getting better. Uh, should we just let it through 
because we already have economic activity slowing down, most leading indicators are slowing down. Uh, global money supply is now only growing at 3 4%. Uh, global credit is improving somewhat, but on a momentum, it was negative for at least the last eight or nine months. And a global credit is only growing at about 3%. We're already taking out a lot of fiscal stimuli out of the system as well, should we just let it run off um, and uh, do very little to sort of to aggravate uh, that situation? Mm. Now, Russia, Ukraine, of course, made a massive difference now. Uh, and so, but but as I said earlier on, um, things like geopolitics or, or healthcare crises, uh, they are ta- they're fat tales. Uh, they can never be estimated. Uh, they can never be predicted. Uh, and and a monetary policy, as I said, is not necessarily the best. Not necessarily. It's not the best. Tool. It's not. It should be the tool uh, that actually addresses uh, either of those things. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. When you look at the yield curve right now, it's clearly pricing in recession. But there is this big debate going on about how much informational value is actually embedded in the yield curve, given you know how much of the treasury market is locked up by the Fed or in bank balance sheets and, and things like that nowadays. But clearly, just looking at the yield curve, you would think that the market sees some sort of policy error on the horizon. You know, rates rise too much, uh, and eventually we end up hitting economic growth in order to bring down inflation. Yes, that's exactly what the yields curves are telling you. And when people say, look, uh, let's look at the short end or the long end, that, that's, that's incorrect. Uh, you should always look at the long end because that's where businesses, the banks are expressing their view as to the trajectory of growth, as to the trajectory of inflation rates, what the equilibrium rates they should have in order to finance their balance sheets, <clears throat> in order to carry on uh, with, uh, with their business. Uh, and what clearly, whether you look at uh, two by ten, whether you look at five by five, well, whatever you look at, uh, there is this incredible flattening occurring. Um, in most cases, you only have uh, twenty bips left. In some parts of the curve, you're already inverted, uh, and so. Federal Reserve and no central banks can leave yield curve inverted for any length of time. Because basically, as you correctly said, what it basically, uh, the message it conveys to the marketplace is that credit conditions are going to be too tight. 
uh, and therefore interest rates uh, ultimately will have to be at a much lower level, uh, and that impedes economic activity as you uh, as you go forward. So they can't just left it uh, leave it unattended, so to speak. And so the market is basically saying policy error is in the making. Uh, it will bring down massively uh, economic growth rates. We might end up with uh, recession. Uh, we might end up with a sequence of heart attacks, potentially. Uh, but ultimately, uh, the inflation will get out of the system through us substantially uh, reducing uh, the, uh, the demand. Uh, and that's what the market is saying. But on the other hand, as you correctly said, informational value of yield curve has significantly eroded. <clears throat> the way I basically compare it is to say, you know, private sector are the musician in the in the orchestra pit, uh, and the central banks are conductors. <clears throat> in the past, they were happy just to conduct, but now they quite often jump in the pit and start playing uh, <laughs> instruments as well as conducting, <clears throat> and so they do both. Uh, and, and so, whenever you have central banks starting to land to the main street or buying uh, collateral that they should never be buying. Uh, or breaching rules on state, fi state financing, uh, or having emergency repo lines just because the repo market is not functioning properly, we'll just have a massive line out there <clears throat> to make it work uh, properly the way we think uh, it should be working. Uh, and so whenever you have that, now the question is how much information or value do you have when the market is so distorted? Uh, and that's part of the reason why I think term premium just disappeared. Uh, even today, it's negative you know, 30, 40, 50 bips, which normally should be more like 150, 160 bips. So as a result of term premium being so low, it's easy to invert, but it conveys less information um, to the marketplace as to what the real economy rather than financial economy is doing. Uh, and the other thing I think it's important to highlight Whenever you read, um, I don't know, all the, all the, all the important people, uh, you know, <laughs> Blanchard or Muhammad Alarian or, uh, or Samus, they're all focusing on a real economy. It's all about labor markets. It's all about capacity constraints. Very little is discussed about financial economy. It is regarded as somewhat a redistribution mechanism. It is not really a creator of anything. But we know that is not true. Uh, and a financial economy is at least five, six times larger than the real economy. And it has it can really crush real economy if it comes to it. So one thing that is missing in that discussion is asset prices and the impact of volatility of asset prices mm. will have on underlying economic activities. We, said, we all talk about wages. We all talk about wages per hour. We all talk about uh, capacity constraints, ships stranded in Los Angeles Harbor. But we're not talking about asset prices. And if we cause significant volatility of asset prices, what does it do to growth? What does it do to inflation? Uh, and the answer, it actually crushes, uh, crushes both of them. So the, I want to drill into this further, and I should note for listeners, we're recording this March 23rd, so who knows uh, what will happen in the next few days while people hear this, but it, before people hear this, but I doubt that this volatility will have gone down so much. The counter argument, I guess, to what you're saying is that, you know, there's so much real demand that's been put in the pockets of um, uh, sort of... I'm thinking back to, say, a conversation that we had with Jeff Curry about what's drive, what drives commodity inflation and the idea of purchasing power being put into lower income households is incredibly powerful. 
It results in more goods purchases or results in more commodity intensive demand and so forth. And so the argument that everyone should focus on the real economy is in part driven by the sort of fact that lots of people have lots of real buying power and they're buying stuff and that's what's causing the jam at the ports and so forth. And uh, the counter argument is that, well, yes, uh, rich people control a lot of the world's financial wealth, but not, you know, real, uh, from a demand perspective, it's not as significant. Talk us through a little bit more why you see in this environment uh, a financial asset volatility, which we've particularly seen in the bond market lately, how that feeds through to uh, potential bust, potential recession, potential disinflation. Well, if you think of, uh, and you're specifically thinking of the United States, uh, if, because other, other markets don't have quite the same dynamics. But if you think of the United States, uh, the top 10% of households control roughly 70, 80% of net assets. Uh, bottom 50% households control absolute and own absolutely nothing. Right. Uh, on a net basis. Uh, and so the whole idea is that the asset side of the balance sheet uh, is that those top 10% of the households, they control assets. The liability side of the balance sheet is a bottom 50, 60%, right? And those bottom 50, 60% must be encouraged to consume and to borrow because if they don't, then the value of the top 10% uh, uh, of the of the households will come down. In other words, asset values will come down. But what we have seen through the COVID and what we have seen through every one of the episodes over the last 20 or 30 years, uh, that the wealth creation of the top 10 just keeps on accelerating and keeps on accelerating. And that means the top 10% getting more and more wealthy. That's your wealth inequality argument. And in fact, it's not just top 10%. You have to remember top 1% controls about 30, 40% of that wealth. So it's even more than just top 10. It's more like top one. Uh, and, and, so, and so the result is that they're accumulating more and more and more assets. They're accumulating assets at a faster pace that they can consume uh, or at a faster pace that they will get provide for their retirement, for example. Uh, and as they continue to create this extra excess wells, that needs to be deployed somewhere. And where does it get deployed? Well, either get deployed in the Ferrari cars, you know, Hampton Mansions, you know, Picasso painting and the rest of it, mm -hmm. uh, maybe super yachts and things like that. But mostly it gets distributed back to the bottom 60% to continue to encourage them to consume. Now, because you're generating more and more wells, uh, interest rates have to be lower and lower, right? Because you're generating more wells than you need, and you need to transfer that wells to the bottom. And the bottom is already barely keeping up with commitments, which means the cost of money has to continue to fall. If you were to encourage those bottom 50, 60% to continue to consume. And so the problem becomes, if the bottom 50, 60% cannot consume, and or if you slow down the wealth accumulation uh, at the top of the pyramid, then the cost of money will go up, right? Because you don't have as much excess capital to reallocate to the bottom 50, 60%. And as it goes up, consumption at the bottom 50, 60% goes down <laughs> uh, even more. Uh, and so the way I look at it, the role and function of Federal Reserve is to be an intermediary between the top 1% and the bottom 60%, or call it top 10% and the bottom 60. <clears throat> they are the conductor of the orchestra, which may have to make sure that the two sides of the balance sheet, all of the assets belong 
to the top one, top 10%, all of the liabilities belong to the to bottom 50 or 60%, <clears throat> that those two are in unison, that those two are in, in, in relative harmony. Uh, and, and that's not an easy task. Now, one way of getting rid of this system is to say, let's just get rid of monetary system as we know it. Uh, in other words, we live in a world which is highly financialized, highly leveraged. Uh, we're all dependent on asset prices as a cue for our decisions, whether to spend or to save, whether to invest or do share buybacks or what sort of CEO compensation you're going to do, whatever. <clears throat> let's break that system uh, and let's create a different system. Well, it's fair enough, but how do you break it? without causing massive volatility and massive collapses of asset prices in the meantime. Because what, what people will find if you create too much volatility, you know, 401ks are not going to be worse what you think they are. Pensions are not going to be worse what they think you are. Real estate prices won't be the same as what they are today. So when people are discussing that we should junk this monetary system that we have built, since 1980s and replace it with another system, I, I basically say, good luck. Uh, I, I agree, we should. Uh, we should have done it 20 years ago, 30 years ago. <clears throat> okay, good luck. Uh, how are you gonna do it? How, how are you gonna go from point A to point B? Clearly the answer is fiscal policy. That's how you go from point A to point B. But fiscal policy is much more inflationary uh, than a monetary policy. Monetary policy is basically disinflationary. But fiscal policy is inflationary because it takes the money from the cloud of finance and puts it down to the ground where real people uh, live. Uh, and so as you create more inflation, um, you're destabilizing your monetary system before you actually build in a new system. <clears throat> so how do you make this transition? Uh, and so nobody in my view knows how to do it. We all sort of understand that it has to change over time. But most of the thinking, most of the advice is still very, very conventional, still treating financial markets as an afterthought, still treating uh, asset prices as an afterthought. Uh, it's all redistribution. If one got wealthy, the other one got poorer. Uh, you have a transfer of wealth. Uh, it's, it's not treated as part of the system itself. Uh, and a critical part of the system, given that it is five, six times larger than the underlying economies are. So that's 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 the answer. In the short term, you're absolutely right. You put more people into into <coughs> poorer uh, people's hand. They consume it. That's why you have increase in demand. That's absolutely correct. But they forget the other side of the balance sheet. Where do those assets belong? Uh, those assets belong in the top one ten percent of the households. Um, I wondered if we could uh, shift focus slightly and maybe talk about what's been going on in China, because there have been a lot of headlines um, coming out of that specific market, but they've also been overshadowed a little bit by events in Europe. So we've seen a, a big route in China equities, uh, tech stocks and real estate stocks. And then it seemed like the authorities came out and seemed to suggest, OK, maybe we went a little bit too far. Uh, maybe we're going to start rolling back some of these various crackdowns that have really hit those two industries. I believe you were fairly bullish on Chinese equities, um, certainly for 2021 and maybe going into 2022. But just talk to us about how you're thinking about that market at the moment and whether or not the central bank seems to be um, correcting its path. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, going into 22, um, I was bullish on Chinese equities for a couple of reasons. First of all, remember, China is the only major economy on the other side of the tight. Everybody's tightening. China is the only one which is completely countercyclical. Uh, <clears throat> China already was countercyclical over the last 18 months when everybody was flushing what was money. Uh, China actually was contracting. And for the next 12, 18 months, it looks like China again will be counter-cyclical. And being on the other side of tightening trade has a great deal of value for investors. Uh, not only it gives you more inflation growth in China, but it also uh, assumes at least that RMB probably on balance ought to be weaker uh, as China uh, liquefies and the rest of the world uh, tightens. Uh, <clears throat> the other argument that I had was all to do with political, geopolitical and regulatory pressures, uh, that whether it's Olympic Games, uh, whether it's a party events all the way through November 2022, that China will try to downplay uh, some of those challenges, whether it's political or regulatory. In other words, it's not going to be of primary importance. Now, don't get me wrong. China will not change its political system, its political views, or its regulatory views, one iota. Uh, there will be no change. Uh, it's irreversible trend. But at least for a period of six to 12 months, I felt uh, that the degree of pressure uh, that China will be under will diminish. Uh, and the third reason, of course, was China was a horrible performer uh, through 2021 and earlier part of 22, and I was assuming that at least some of that can be uh, can be reclaimed. <clears throat> so if you think of it right now, it's been a wrong call because China underperformed so far Asia and Japan as well as uh, as well as emerging market universe by another eight or nine percent. But that's having underperformed by twenty percent last year. <clears throat> so so clearly it was a wrong call. Uh, and there are a couple of reasons for that. Reason number one is what you've alluded to: uh, the Chinese policymakers are really calibrating. This idea that they're going to do the same thing as what they've done the last three times is well and truly uh, debt. Uh, they don't want to add another 10 or $15 trillion of debt, although they don't mind a little bit more uh, leveraging. They don't want infrastructure investment to be galloping 25 30% again. Uh, they don't want another massive bubble in real estate. Uh, and so they are <clears throat> trying to calibrate, trying to give you enough stimulus in order to achieve reduced gross expectations without complicating longer-term uh, picture. And so the result is you actually have less differentiation, I guess, between tightening and mm. easing countries. <clears throat> and so this argument that you're on the other side of the trade <clears throat> so far hasn't been as strong as I thought it, it might be. Uh, the second area, of course, is politics, geopolitics, and and the and the regulatory drive. Um, to, to, to me, uh, China uh, has uh, no choice uh, but to uh, support uh, Russia. Uh, and, 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 and the reason for that is very simple. It's nothing to do with economics. Uh, it's nothing to do with markets. And it's everything to do with the fact that um, Russia, China, some other places like Iran, Central Asia, they look at the world in a similar way. Uh, in other words, their view is the state is dominant. Uh, their view is it's uh, interest of society and community, uh, Trump, uh, interest of individuals. 
they have their own view what international rules should be, whether it's rules for the trade, including how you treat state-owned enterprises, um, absolute sovereignty, sort of harping back to 18th century and you know, part of the 19th century, <clears throat> where there was absolute sovereignty. A nation is entitled to do whatever they want within uh, their own borders. Uh, so whether it's internet and balkanization of internet, uh, whether it's a role of the state, whether it's a role of state versus private sector, uh, both Russia and China believe that private sector is subordinate uh, to the state uh, and should be largely doing what the state think they should be doing. Now, China clearly is not Russia. It gives a lot more freedom uh, to private sector. <clears throat> it's much more innovative. So it's not the same, but the basic concepts are the same. And so what we're seeing is this massive illiberal Eurasian block uh, forming, uh, led by China, what I call Sinosphere. But within that will be nestled uh, smaller, you know, Russian Empire, Iranian Empire, Central Asia, and, and many other parts. And to me, the objective of redefining global rules, redefining global behavior, to be much more in line with the way countries like China think about the world is far more important than any particular given trade relationship uh, or a slight diminution of, of GDP numbers. So the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, did not come at the good time for, for China, and I'm sure China would rather not have that. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, uh, China has to be uh, on, uh, on, on, on they, they can't be completely neutral uh, in this because, as I said, they do look at world very similar way, uh, the way places like Russia or Iran look, look at the world. And the same applies to regulatory issues because it goes down to the concept of a separation of state enterprises and state itself versus private enterprises. What we have seen since 2012 is increasing fusion between the two. Prior to 2012, you actually have separation. And in many ways, state enterprises were encouraged to behave more like private enterprises. <clears throat> Since 2012, there was a very strong link towards fu fusion of the two. So the space separating state and non-state, private <clears throat> and public, has been diminishing for more than uh, more than a decade. And so when people say, hey, we're finishing with the regulatory aspect, uh, no, we're not. Uh, you can ease back a little bit tactically, but the basic strategic thrust uh, of lack of separation between the two uh, is something that is going to stay with us. Um, and, and I was surprised a little bit that it actually continued <laughs> as aggressively as it did over the last uh, over the last six months. Uh, and so, so to me, uh, when I look at China, uh, people want and investors want to have a bit of ray of sunshine. And any 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 idea or any concept that somehow Russia and Ukraine might be winding down in some form, any view that perhaps regulatory pressures will get a little bit less, perhaps you're going to get a little bit more uh, stimulatory action as we progress through the balance of the year, still should be enough for Chinese equities to outperform our emerging markets. Uh, but as I said, in an earlier part of the year, that call uh, was wrong because basic ingredients that I was hoping are going to play through that didn't quite uh, get there. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market. 
giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. I want to expand further on this idea, as you put it, the sort of Eurasian illiberal coalition or bloc. And one of the things that's been striking, of course, with Russia is beyond just the formal sanctions, the degree to which uh, U.S. companies or inter- European companies as well as well have just sort of abandoned Russia, abandoned operations in many cases, severed ties with the local unit of the business. And I'm curious, you know, what is if these blocks harden, these relationships harden, what does that mean for the U.S.-China economic relationship? And could there be a slower version of that same process in play by which, you know, if, if there is this separation, if there is two internets, if there is this sort of dramatically different regulatory environment there, will we see this sort of uh, some sort of break uh, with the companies that have uh, trade and links in both countries? Yes, you will. I, I, I prefer to call it a slow moving train wreck. Uh, so Russia was an immediate implosion, a very, very yeah. fast implosion. Uh, China is not Russia. China is critical to every supply and value chain. China is more than 10% of the global economy. It's not less than 2% of global economy. So the things that could be done to Russia can never be done to China because the blowback uh, to the Western economies and Western societies will be just enormous. But what you're going to get, I believe, as we continue forward, as the blocks hardened, sort of the Anglosphere, the EU27, uh, the Sinosphere, or a liberal Eurasian bloc, as it hardens, uh, you will find more and more separation. It usually starts with the uh, softer areas and more high-tech areas. So, for example, transfer of knowledge, transfer of technology, uh, educational institution, ability to acquire skills. Uh, it progresses on to some more humanitarian pockets. Uh, and then it progresses on to sanctions against certain individuals. It progresses to inability to access capital. Um, and so, so to me, that's an inevitable progression. Access to capital will be a privilege, uh, not uh, a free market opportunity the way it has been over the last three to four decades. Uh, but then gradually we're creeping up into other relationships as well as we progress forward. Again, I want to highlight that China is not Russia. Uh, and and this disconnect or ability to quarantine a country of the size and importance of China is just not on. Nobody will ever contemplate it. Uh, but gradually, bit by bit, uh, over a long period of time, that's going to be the answer. And so the question that becomes <clears throat> from an asset perspective or investor perspective, uh, is China investable? Is it portfolio manageable? Uh, because if we continue on this path, which looks likely we will, uh, then from international investors, opportunity to invest in China and Chinese equities will become more constrained. Uh, 
Now, that doesn't preclude private equity participating in various ventures. It doesn't preclude companies investing into some plants, for example. Uh, but uh, whether you're private equity, whether you are a company, or whether you're a portfolio manager, you'll be second-guessing yourself. You'll be saying, should I do this? Will I wake up on Monday morning uh, and find in Financial Times I've done something I shouldn't have done? Uh, and, and whenever people start to second-guess themselves, so to speak, they are slower. Uh, they will be a little bit less committed. And I think that's what you're going to see. You're going to see a little bit less commitment, uh, slower responses, um, more desire to look again <clears throat> and double-check yourself whether you, in fact, are doing the right thing. And it does, wouldn't just apply to portfolio managers. It will apply to their trustees. It will apply to management teams that are running uh, those funds. Uh, and, and so I, I think you're absolutely right. That's, that's what the final trajectory would look like. Does it mean that there is no capital in China or China will be stopped of capital? Uh, that's not the case. Uh, China has no shortage of capital. Right. China needs expertise. Um, uh, and knowledge uh, rather than capital. So it doesn't mean necessarily disaster for China or a Eurasian block or Sinosphere block, whatever you call it. It doesn't mean that at all. Uh, it's just it will be functioning by different rules. It will have different systems. <clears throat> it will have different role of the state and private sectors. It, it'll just be different. Uh, but it doesn't mean necessarily a, a disaster. Mm. So given all this uncertainty that you've laid out, what are you actually recommending people <laughs> buy at the moment? Because I feel like we often have these macro conversations and, you know, it's like, here's a risk. Here's another risk. Bonds clearly aren't a good bet if rates are going to go up significantly. But on the other hand, you probably don't want to own stocks if you think that rates are going to go up and then lead to some sort of recession. It feels very, very hard to advise people on what exactly to buy in the current environment. It is, it is. <laughs> and that's one of the problems with not having a normal distribution of events. Hmm. People are functioning in corporate finance and investment theory, functioning on the normal distribution. In other words, you can anticipate, you can predict certain outcomes, you can estimate what the impact of those outcomes will be. As soon as it is no longer normal distribution, uh, those events cannot be predicted, uh, those events cannot be estimated, uh, and, and hence, uh, as a portfolio manager, you're lost. Uh, whatever bet you're making is just a bet. It's a gamble. It's not really an investable proposition. Now, you might take a view that commodities is a way to go forward. Absolutely fine. <clears throat> but more likely than not, that actually over the longer term might turn out to be wrong unless you're in the right commodities. People will say, should I go into high asset, low return on invested capital type companies. Well, yes, maybe, but it depends uh, what's going to happen. Depends what is the role of the state going to be, what is the role of fiscal policies are going to be. The same applies to the bond market. The same way as we're worried about inflation, the same inflation could collapse very quickly as we go into 2023. Remember, inflation is a delta. Uh, <clears throat> in other words, all the prices have to be higher uh, in uh, <clears throat> you know uh, March, April, uh, 23 compared to March, April 22 to give you a positive read on inflation. Uh, and it is quite possible that the markets are right, uh, that by 23, 24, you're going to have at least three or four uh, interest rate cuts occurring uh, rather than uh, uh, tightening of monetary policy. It is also possible that fiscal policy will go back into becoming a player after contracting uh, for 18 months. <clears throat> so all of this could change very quickly and therefore 10-year bonds 
could end up back at one, one and a half percent easily, rather than just marching on to two and a half, three percent. So to me, in all this sea of confusion, and we haven't even talked about uh, whether it's a healthcare emergency or whether it's uh, pandemics or whether it's geopolitical events, we haven't even talked about that. Um, So in that sort of sea of confusion, to me, uh, just identifying what are the right circular drivers, what is changing, what isn't changing. Well, financialization is not changing. Uh, remember, the only reason uh, U.S. has an opportunity to raise money or raise cost of capital is because uh, the policy rates today in the U.S. are below neutral rates. Neutral rates in the U.S. are roughly around zero in real terms. That means about 2% in nominal terms. But if you think of Eurozone and Japan, uh, their policy rates are in line, if not even higher, <clears throat> than their neutral rates. So they can't really tighten uh, and so U.S. has an opportunity to tighten, but as they tighten and get closer to our star or a neutral rate, what's going to happen? Volatility of asset prices increase. So financialization is unstoppable because as soon as volatility of asset prices goes up, central banks have to back off. And this idea that we need to generate more money and more liquidity than underlying economies require <coughs> cannot be reversed. So that's a given. The other thing is given is technology will continue progressing. Right now we have shortages here and there, but at the end of the day, technology will continue reducing uh, marginal pricing power of both capital, uh, marginal pricing power products, corporates, uh, as well as as well as labor. Uh, that should be uh, that should be given. Uh, and the third thing that should be given is that geopolitical, social, and political pressures will continue boiling over and might get much tougher, actually, as we go over the next uh, over the next five to 10 years. So none of that stuff is actually changing. So if it is not changing, what do you want to buy? Well, you want to buy commodities that are actually replacing today's world and building the new world. Uh, that's your copper, your nickel, your aluminum, your lithium, your rare earths, your semiconductors. Uh, what else do you want to do? Well, capital goods companies that actually will be rebuilding what was destroyed plus building the new the new era. What else do you want to do? Well, the new startups that will be operating new world, whether it's alternative uh, transportation platforms, energy platforms, whether it's a fusion of infotech and biotech, uh, uh, all of that stuff, plus in addition to that, some software and select digital companies you want to have. Not all of them, but you want to have some of them. You want to look at any company in any sector that has not just pricing power, but ability to do things differently, whether their products, their marketing, the way they use technology, and therefore their productivity growth rates are faster. So to me, the in a, in a sea of confusion, the only thing is certain is that go with a circular strengths and go with the productivity drivers. In other words, those guys who consistently deliver excess of productivity. Hmm. Circular strengths, productivity drivers. To me, that's an easiest way to, uh, to sort of conceptualize it. Um, in the short term, however, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Energy, if you take out energy, global markets would not have performed. Uh, and if you were in energy, you're up 25, 30% against any index. If you have a mix of energy and financials, you would have been up at least 10, 15%. If you are somebody like Casey Wood of ARC, which is completely on the opposite side, you would have been down 25, uh, 30% against the indexes. So somewhere in between those extreme outcomes, to me, is the sort of the essence of resilient portfolio. Do you really want to plonk more on energy at the current prices? 
uh, or do you really want to completely double down and triple up, so to speak, uh, on, uh, on, on extreme startups or on profitable tech companies? Uh, the answer to me, both of those answers are wrong because both of them will lead to very high crystallized volatility. And, and somewhere between those outcomes, I, I think, lies sort of resilient portfolio. I just want to go back real quickly just to this idea of, as you put it, prior to uh, the invasion of Ukraine, there are already indicators of normalization. And it's really not clear how much aggressive easing is needed, especially in light of the uh, massive amount of fiscal that's being taken out of the system. What is the worry? And, you know, we talked about the, the deflationary bust after the inflation of the Spanish flu. How do you see a potential policy mistake playing out right now? Well, the, the the only number sort of to look at is really financial conditions. Uh, different countries call it different names. Some call it stress conditions. Some call it some other names. But essentially, all of them are the same. All of them take into account variety of spreads, uh, like high yield spreads, right. uh, and a variety of volatilities uh, in various markets in order to define how um, how easy or tight financial conditions are. What you have seen so far in the last uh, <clears throat> sort of six weeks, seven weeks, is a fairly dramatic tightening occurring in the Eurozone as well as in emerging markets. Uh, but in the US, tightening so far has been less pronounced. Uh, and the reason for that is that, uh, as I said, the R star in the US is above the policy rates. So you still stimulatory. You still have the capacity to come, uh, to come up. The question is, how far can you come? How close can you come to Astar? Can you go above Astar and actually become contractionary? Uh, to me, the answer is you can't go above that. But as you go closer and closer, volatility of asset prices increases. Now, remember, uh, theoretically, Astar is zero real, which is, say, 2% nominal. So there is a room for 50 bips, maybe another 25, maybe a little bit more. But as you go up, and get closer and closer to our star, volatility of asset prices will substantially significantly increase. Uh, when that happens, it flows straight through into financial conditions indexes. And that's a cue for central banks to pull back. They have no choice but to pull back uh, very quickly. Uh, and, and so, I, I, as you know, I, I, I tended to believe that 22 will be the year of removal of fiscal and monetary supports. 23, 24 will be the years of putting it back on. Hmm. Uh, and, and, so, and so I still maintain that that's probably will be the right answer. And the cue will be financial condition indexes. If you want to look at specific areas, of course, you can look at high yield spreads, you can look at the plumbing of the banking system. There are specific indicators you can look at it, but all of that is kind of conceptualized. Uh, into financial condition index. Now, you can also argue that uh, we talked about the yield curve. Uh, the more it inverts, uh, the more Federal Reserve would need to consider operation twist, um, or, or, or in other words, some degree of yield curve control. Uh, that's something that might be part of the discussion and debate uh, as we go towards the end of 22. All right. Well, Victor, we're going to have to leave it there. But thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you. I'd really appreciate it. So, Joe, it's always great hearing from Victor, and he has this uncanny knack of bringing everything together under one sort of giant macro umbrella. Yeah. Uh, but I thought what he was saying about 
the parallel to the post-Spanish flu mm-hmm. era was really interesting. And also to get back to this idea of, you know, we can have an inflationary spike, but that can easily tip over into deflation. This idea of it's not necessarily that prices are just going up and up and up right now. It's actually that they're really volatile and it's hard to measure. And what that means is that it's really difficult to get a handle on real demand versus sort of fake stockpiling demand. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, something that he touched on, and I've been writing a little bit about this, and, you know, even Powell uh, talked about it in his two recent appearances. Mm. Whatever you say about the the T word, transitory, (laughs) transitory, some of the current inflation is still likely the result of it, even though no one uses that word. And there's been major disruptions and uh, there's the shift in uh, consumption from services to goods and all these sort of unusual things and the trillions of dollars that spent, which is now not going to be spent in 2022. There is fiscal tightening. And so I do, you know, no one talks about, uses the word transitory, but that is still an element. And if it's significant, and if we were going to see some sort of normalization naturally, plus you add in an aggressive hiking cycle, then you get to the scenario Victor laid out where by 2023, they're talking about easing again. Totally. I mean, this is the other thing that emerged from the pandemic. We didn't really get a proper recession after the pandemic because we had all the stimulus. Yeah. And then we sort of got shunted into a recovery that was really supercharged, again, thanks to that fiscal stimulus. And now it feels like we're sort of getting the response I know some people say it was too slow coming, but it actually feels like it could come very quickly with Powell talking about 50 basis point increases. And so it feels like we could get a whole nother cycle happening very, very fast. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I I had this thought about like this sort of, I guess it's like the the funhouse mirror version of the downturn and how fast mm. this upturn turn itself. And you know what day I felt like that specifically is that day, remember, like the price of nickel went completely oh, berserk yeah. and they had to shut down the nickel trading. And the day it reminded me of, weirdly, was the day that oil went negative, mm. even though it was the exact opposite move. One, right. If one is this huge spike, but both of these days that sort of like broke the market, except in opposite directions. And so to some extent, it did feel like, I don't know, like, yes, I think what you're what you're saying is well put, like, we're just getting this like really extremely torqued version of what we experienced throughout 2020. Hopefully things, you know, that hence the hence the dream of a soft landing or just to have normal. Yeah. Torqued is a good word, isn't it? All right. Um, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. Okay. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Big thanks to our producers, Magnus Henriksen and Colin Tipton. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of the podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. 
You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.